I'm Dave Laird. I'm Matt Booker. And I'm Dario Diofebi. And everything's at once extraordinary and dull here on Concavity Show. That That is true. Ain't that that the truth, Matt? It's true, (laughs) but it's also the first line of Dario's book, which is called Paradise Nevada, which we will be discussing here today on episode number 66. 66. Dario, welcome to the show, man. It's great to have you here. Thank you. Hi. Um, Thank you so much for having me. Thank you. So glad to be here. Thank you for joining us from from Rome, too. For us to read. And yeah, and and another European guest from Rome. So we're all in uh, three radically different time zones right now. Which, uh, <laughs> we, ma- we managed to make it work. So we managed Sunday yeah. morning for me, Sunday night for you, Dario. And yeah, it's, it's Sunday like seven fifteen. It's totally okay. <laughs> Definitely manageable. We often start recording at like nine nine thirty in in Austin time. So Matt's always you know pretty tired by the end, but it's <laughs> <laughs> good. It's true. So, Dario, you've written a book called Paradise Nevada. It came out, was it late last year, I think? Uh, April, as... April last year. April, April last, last year, year, yeah. yeah. Um, and Matt, how would you characterize this book? How would you describe, how did you find out about this book, Matt? I found about it from one of your Instagram posts, Matt. I saw it in a book stack and I was like, yeah. oh, that spine looks really nice. And then I started researching <laughs> it and then I got it and then I read it and then here we are. So I, I, I found out about the book because I have a Google alert for David Foster Wallace in the news anytime mm-hmm. David Foster Wallace is mentioned in the news. And your book was compared to Wallace in a couple of different reviews or yeah. places, and including one pretty pretty mixed review uh, in the New York Times. <laughs> yeah. but, I, but I was telling Dave that that review, at, it had the opposite effect on me, which actually sold me I'm on glad. the book. And so I was like, everything that this reviewer doesn't like about your book is something that I would like. So, <laughs> so I was like, uh, I, I really wanted to check it out. And I mean, I've had a sort of passing interest in in Vegas and poker and stuff for a long time. And so I, I bought the book um, as soon as I could. And I just got immediately sucked into it. It because, and I think the Washington Post review touched on this, it's sort of a throwback to the the 1990s of like, compared to some maximalist type novels that are, you know, multi-narrative strands kind of interleaved mm-hmm. with a sort of uh, alternate reality. Um, you know, Vegas is Vegas as we know it, but sort of slightly different. It's like a um, trans world identity, like Brian McHale uh, it has that, it, it, that phrase for like, you know, right. when you put a real person into a novel, but then you change them. Uh, that's sort of his critical theory. Now yeah, the, I feel like, like the world is, here. Yeah. I feel like the world is like off kilter, but just like a few degrees. It's like mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. very slightly removed, but like in ways that like I either found significant or that just allowed me to write. Um, honestly, a lot of it was just like it, it made it easier to write and made it more fun to write. Um, I, I think I originally started writing it, um, in a more, I guess, not realistic setting, but like, um, when I wrote the first chapter of it was the first chapter I wrote was the first Ray chapter in the book. Mm-hmm. And that started out, uh, that, that, that specific chapter has still has no references to anything that isn't more or less real. Right. And then, and then right after that, I, I wrote that first interlude 
that is in the book and describing the hotel in Vegas where this is set. And I started kind of going a bit off the rails with, with, with regards to reality. Uh-huh. And I had so much more fun doing that. So yeah, I, just I kept doing that. Totally. So for, I'm going to try to briefly summarize the book. Uh, there are multiple characters. I wouldn't even say if there's a single main character, but you mentioned Ray, who is a kind of a math whiz genius at online poker and moves to play in person in Vegas in reality and it becomes a much different game for him sort of grinding it out at the top casino in town which is this uh, Positano which is sort of an almost an exact replica of the town of Positano this huge multi-billion dollar casino right in the middle of the strip and then we have uh, a couple of other characters who come and go. Uh, we meet throughout the book. Marianne is one of the first ones we meet who is a cocktail waitress. Um, she is dealing with all kinds of personal issues and later gets caught up in a sort of unionization movement. Um, the other well, sort of Marxist ideology themes right. working themselves into those sections of the book, which, which were so fun to read. Right. And I think Thank this you. is where it gets called like a systems novel in some places in that you're dealing with different systems of power, different systems of uh, social and cultural climate that uh, multiple characters sort of play out. Uh, one of the other ones is Tom, who is uh, Italian, right? And he for, sort of finds his Very way on, on a tourist <laughs> visa uh, and ends up playing um, a lot of poker and becomes roommates with kind of a crazy American YouTuber guy named Trevor, Trevor. <laughs> uh, who is a great character. And who wears your also... shoes with the individual toe fingers? <laughs> he does. As that, he walks I, around. I, I don't see those. I don't see those anymore around, but they were definitely a thing at some point. And I, oh, I would yeah. see them. Vibram five fingers. <laughs> Vibram five finger. Very. Also in Nevada, maybe more common, like some dude who's going to go out and rock climb, rock climb and then yeah. come right, in right. at midnight and start playing you know, video poker at midnight or something. I saw someone um, wearing those like a week or two ago in a, it's in just a okay. middle school. So there's still school, a thing. So, Good to yeah. know. <laughs> uh, and then we also have a character, one of the only ones who is not a, she is a native Nevadan is Lindsay, who is the journalist and she is a Mormon and we get sort of her story. Um, and her brother is also a really interesting character, I think named yeah. Orson. Um, so th- those are sort of the like main Mormon characters yeah. that come and go. Uh, there are a lot of other slightly smaller characters, including a sort of mail order bride character uh, and their dog, Pepper the dog, who uh, I love uh, as much as Tom does. Um, but we start out with, you know, these two sort of poker players and we meet a bunch of other poker players as we go. And, you know, I I think that it became clear to me as I was reading the book that one thing I love about books like this is that you really do get into the mind of someone that has expertise in an area that you don't. Mm -hmm. And it became clear that only a sort of former professional poker player could write a book like this because there is so much detail and drama and sort of the inner workings of how poker tables work and the dynamics of of not just the math and the algorithms behind each decision, but the human part of it too. So yeah. I guess my first question for you, Dario is like one, I assume that you are a former poker player and yeah. that you can then talk Sim- to us. 
in the bio on the flap, right? <laughs> a little bit about sort of your path. Emphasis on the former, though. <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and and this sort of takes place too, I should say, in the golden age of uh, poker online poker coming to an end. And yeah. um, you want to talk to us a little bit about your path there from online poker to real world poker to becoming a writer. I know that's a long question. <laughs> it is, yeah. I, I mean, I'm like um, always like uh, I try not to to connect my own experience to the book too much, but uh, there's definitely. Um, a vaguely similar path that my career took as Ray's uh, yeah. for a certain, for in, in some small ways, in that like I also started as an online player and then uh, as online became harder and harder uh, and required a lot more time and study to keep up with, I also was a much less talented player than Ray is. Uh, <laughs> I should say that. Um, it became easier to still make a living at it by, by traveling and playing live poker uh, in casinos because that stayed consistently easier. Um, so that, that happened throughout this though, poker was, uh, it, it was very much a job, but it always had that feeling of a job that you won't do forever. Like it, it never felt like, Oh, this is going to be my career. This is going to be what I'll do forever. Also, I, I really had wanted to write for a long time. Um, so it always felt like, okay, I guess I'll spend my 20s doing this and then um, hopefully at some point something will shake me out of this phase. And uh, that something for me was getting into an MFA. And once I got into an MFA, I just figured, okay, I guess I'm done playing poker. I'll just do something else. Yeah. But the writing was, was really uh, what, I, what I wanted to do anyway. So. Mm -hmm. And this is at NYU, right? That you did your MFA? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So you, you spend your time in Brooklyn uh, some time of the year and then in Rome sort of splitting yeah your, splitting your year out yeah. yeah after i i mean i did the mfa between 2016 and 2018 but then i stayed in in brooklyn and i i live there now which yeah. most of the time i'm in brooklyn and then uh a few months a year i still come to rome where i am now yeah and for someone who is not a native english speaker i mean your writing in english is is truly incredible and yeah, i wanted totally. to talk to Thank you. you i wanted to talk to you about your sort of path to really becoming a reader i assume in your younger years you know at some point you did read a lot of these um, books that were influential to you in some way i'm assuming in english is that correct yeah yeah yeah, okay. yeah. and and that was fairly unique or was that like common amongst your friends and family that they were readers or were what what drew you into the contemporary fiction Oh, the, the, the English language was absolutely unique. It was, uh, I guess, kind of a hobby is the best way I can describe it. I really got interested in the English, English language, and I really enjoyed watching TV shows or movies in English and reading books in English for no particular reason other than, I guess, like people around me said, like, learning English is important. So you start taking a few classes, uh, a few lessons of that, and then... I was just fascinated by the language, by the way it worked. It's so different from Italian. Uh, writing in English is so different from writing in Italian. And I found it very interesting. And then I kind of start, started reading books in English, sometimes even books that weren't like, I would read Russian books in English sometimes. So um, most of my reading uh, since I was like 16, I guess, has been done in English. And I guess my, my natural prose is in English. I feel much more comfortable writing prose in English than I do writing in Italian, which is weird, admittedly. Oh, yeah. 
So it's not like with this book, you like wrote, you know, a paragraph in Italian and then you like translate it into English or anything like you're thinking in English. No, no. Yeah, Prim- no, not at all. I, days, you think? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it, my, my prose is much better in English. There's there's no doubt. Like I've never really uh, I, I think my I, I speak Italian naturally, obviously, and uh, my first language is Italian. My native language is Italian, but uh the language of my prose, the language in which I think of fiction is English. And, and that's always been the language it was natural for me to write in. And when you were, you know, discovering literature, what were some of the books that were, you know, drew you to read more or were important to you then? Um, well, I guess, I mean, it, it's not uh, hard to tell from my own book, as you <laughs> pointed out, but I guess the the main things that I was really reading a lot of were like 19th century social novels. Uh, Tolstoy, Dickens, uh, in general, like 19th century social novels were like really a big hmm. part of my reading experience, as I think is pretty obvious from reading the book. And uh, and then contemporary literature, specifically a certain kind of postmodern novel that I clearly uh, have read a lot of and, and had a lot of fun reading, <laughs> both, the, both the French postmoderns and the American postmoderns. Like I couldn't try to hide that i would i would like to try to hide that i think but like there's really no point (laughs) yeah just be yourself i guess yeah it's like uh, i keep coming up like seeing online like just there is an overwhelming like cultural phenomenon in italy with like of just obsession with like american postmodern writers you know like there's such a huge like wallace community in italy like such a huge fan base there and so i guess that kind of naturally sort of worked into what you're doing hey yeah, well, I think like Italian postmodernism was really big in Italian literature. We had our own uh, postmodern yeah. literature. If you think like Umberto Eco was like uh, totally. a writer, kind of in that, although he, in a very different way, obviously a very different kind of writer. But like uh, he also wrote novels that had that kind of like all-encompassing, like gigantic, uh, um, you know, scope uh, and included culture from centuries and and and, yeah, and right. languages and uh, different languages. Um, so like there is definitely a public for that. There's definitely a culture of postmodern fiction in Italy. Mm-hmm. Uh, then French postmodernism was, was, uh, kind of like, uh, next door in a sense. Right. And so I think, I think that that fiction has always been successful here. Um, it's still read a lot. Uh, Delilah is very popular. Wallace is very popular. Yeah. Um, a lot of postmodern writers are popular in Italy and I read a lot of that. Um, well, it's it's interesting too that you mentioned those those nineteenth century social novels and uh, you know the the contemporary versions of those often get called maximalist, right, or some yeah. like hyper realistic. Um, but those you know Dickens and Tolstoy and Dostoevsky don't really get called maximalist novels, even though that's <laughs> similar. I mean, you know, it's theme, what, what it was, right? Structure, right? Yeah, right. Um, but but I do think that fits pretty well with you know, the description of your book, because it does have several themes in it that I think are, are commenting on lessons f- about, you know, bigger power structures in mm-hmm. society. Um, you know, one, one of the ones that, you know, you've written about in Crime Reads and your, your essay about the history of online poker is sort of about the the similarities between the rise of online poker and the sort of gamification of the global economy and markets and that what we saw melt down and you know the global financial crisis of 2008 um i I think there's a lot 
that that bleeds into your writing from that sort of uh, juxtaposition between you know spending real money on a game and spending real money on a market that uh, you know both have implications in real people's lives. So you know what what drew you to or how soon did you see that connection as you were playing and think you know this is something you have to talk about. Uh, I mean, remarkably late. I have a, a, a very bad track record of, of being aware of things as they happen. I, I figure stuff out years later if I do ever. So, um, um, but I, I did. Um, there is to me a very deep connection between the great financial crisis and poker. Just if it, nothing else, because I started playing poker because the great financial crisis happened. Like I graduated. Uh, my master's in university in 2000, I want to say nine or 10. And, uh, and there were no jobs. There was nothing. Italy was hit very, very hard by the financial crisis. And it felt like playing cards for a bit uh, for a living didn't feel like that much of a waste of time because it's not like I was, you know, taking time away from missing out on huge opportunities or anything else. So to me, the connection was immediately there. It then took me years to, and, and, and I think I processed uh, what actually was happening with poker much, much later and once I quit doing that professionally. But yeah, as you pointed out, my, what I was saying in that essay is that there are, there's a lot of like narratives, uh, I'm big on narratives, I guess, about things. There's a lot of narratives about how poker gives like big life lessons because it teaches you to like hack your brain into hyper efficiency and being like, a, be- a better decision maker because you can see the kind of like statistical matrix of, 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 of existence and you, mm-hmm. you make better decisions, you disregard the noise and only focus on the signal, that kind of thing. And, um, and this is the narrative that most like former poker players or poker players who write articles tend to peddle. And I have nothing against that. I think that's probably uh, correct. I don't particularly like it personally for myself. I don't think it's very um, productive because it kind of leads you to, uh, it, it teaches you to kind of like disregard uh, feeling and emotion whenever it leads you astray in decision-making, which is probably a good decision if you're like buying stocks, but like, I'm not sure in like day-to-day decisions, it's actually very good. Um, and to me, the actual lesson I'd learned from poker, and there was one that I did learn from poker was was how easy it is to turn huge financial uh, processes processes into games and how uh, much uh, how much less um, daunting those decisions for example financial decisions seem when you're uh, when they are taken when when those decisions are made in inside a game within a game so like taking someone's money or exploiting someone mistake someone's mistake in order to make money mm-hmm. feels like a horrible thing to do in life. But <laughs> if you if you frame that as I'm playing a game, these are the rules of the game, then it becomes kind of a, that's how the game is played. And that's kind of how high finance in some ways works. Like high finance is extremely gamified mm-hmm. and all the decisions are taken, are made, are made within the rules of, uh, uh, within the set of rules of the game of finance. And, and it kind of works like poker. It's, um, it's, it kind of removes you, moves you away from the reality of the, of the money being exchanged that is at the, at the, at the heart of it. 
Um, so it kind of becomes this abstract game, this superstructure of like, oh, I'm not, I'm, I'm trading futures. I'm not even, this is not about someone's like house that like they're renting. It's not their mortgage. It's uh, I'm trading a, an option on, on this that will mature in like 10 years or whatever. So it's a, it, it, it was very interesting to me to, to see how I could also completely not understand that as I was playing. Like to me, what I was doing as a poker player, which was trying to make money off of people's mistakes at the table, uh, was a completely neutral activity. Not that there's anything wrong. Uh, I think I do make that point in that essay that like comparatively speaking, poker is extremely small potatoes. It's not a big deal. It's, um, it's really marginal in the economy in a way. But it is still a, a financial process, a financial battle that is disguised as a game. And once you do disguise things as games, it's much, much harder to get hung up on the morality of it, I think. Well, and I think, uh, you know, Annie Duke is an example of one of the former, like, poker players who became, mm -hmm. like, decision scientist. She quit playing poker yeah. and does a lot of, like, you know, behavioral economics and behavioral decision-making finance stuff. And... You know, it, the the point, too, that I think you make in the book is that it is exploitative, right, of these people who are sort of on the margins of the business, too, and that it's not just numbers on a screen when you're in a casino. And I think making that reality of, you know, these workers who are around the business of it, mm -hmm. there's a really interesting scene, too, where you... Um, you have these poker players who are in the same sort of spots at the table day after day after day. And there's a real like hierarchy and pecking order. Mm -hmm. And even which like waitress brings which bottled water to them. They don't drink alcohol at the table because it's like a job for them. And then they change the size of the water bottle that comes in the Fiji, uh, yeah. the, the Fiji water bottle. It's like, uh, they freak out. <laughs> yeah. The size of the water bottle. Cause it's like, well, if it's too big, then they're trying to tell us to go pee more and we're losing money. And then they, they yeah. have to tip more. And I mean, all of this, um, and, and that's so the sort of per like a bottle, right? Per, per delivery. So if there's smaller bottles, they're getting more tips. And that's like a, yeah. you flesh that out in like an amazingly um, sort of profound and extract extended way in the book. Yeah. But that's like a real world, you know, gamification. Yeah, and totally. I, th I think like, um, you know, Robinhood has gotten in trouble for stock yeah. trading app of making the app like too fun, like uh, blurring this line between, you know, gambling in a casino where you know what you're getting into in some regards like you're not doing it to better society or to as an investment and then blurring the line with an actual investment where it seems like you maybe are on an online casino and it's fun and you get little animations that pop up when you successfully you know trade an option yeah and it tremendously it is tremendously interesting to see it kind of bleed into real life because then you pointed out the example of the, the, the Fiji bottles, right? And like, you do start thinking, uh, well, if like this was 50 centiliters and now it's 33 centiliters, so I'm still tipping $1 every time I get a bottle. So now like that, that I'm getting less for my like dollar. And, and you start thinking of that. You like, I see poker players thinking in those terms. I mean, for, for all kinds of decisions, more important decisions. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's very interesting to me to, to see that because I, I know, and, and now like times past, I, I know that that's how finance people work too. Like that's definitely, it's very hard not to let games bleed into the way you start, you think about the world. Yeah. 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 
And, you know, I wanted to ask you too about Vegas sort of as a character, because mm-hmm. anyone who's been to Vegas will tell you the first time you go, there's this sort of, um, I don't know, split reality of this sort of simulacrum of, you know, the pyramids and Paris and, and then down the street is like a Walmart with like a McDonald's in it and just total like everyday life of people who have nothing to do with the casinos. And I, and I think you do a good job of showing the sort of balance between, you know, the people who are regulars there and who live there. And then the people who, you know, they're sort of almost like the backstagers at a a performance. Like there's this theater of it almost. And, you know, what was your first experience in Vegas? Like, I mean, did that, was that something that immediately struck you? Um, Well, thank you. First of all, um, (laughs) well, living there for like a stretch of time that is like longer than, than that of tourists, like kind of forces you to see that whether you uh, set out to see it or not, because obviously you're not going to live on the strip. You're going to live somewhere far in the suburbs and drive to, to, to the strip every day, or uh, in fact, not even get to the strip because you can get into casinos from side streets and from the back. So like I would go weeks without seeing the strip and had no desire to, Um, (laughs) but, um, but Vegas as a character was important to me in, um, in that, like, it is a city, as you say, it is very much a city. There's like, uh, the life of people that happens there is very much the life of people in most of the Southwest of the States and in general America. Um, but it is also a city that does, whether we like it or not, market itself in a certain way and does like uh, make a narrative of itself in a certain way. Um, so there's definitely things that are visible in Vegas um, that aren't visible elsewhere. Um, there are uh, the, the kind of the class distinctions, the monetary exchanges, a lot of things that are swept under the kind of under the table or under carpet, I guess, in, in other parts of the country or the world in Vegas happen literally on the table. Like right. nothing is under the table. It's, it's very physically on the table. Mm-hmm. So you get to, this is something that actually uh, Dave Hickey wrote about too. Like he says, like what, I think he said something like what, what is hidden elsewhere exists here in quotidian visibility, which I think was brilliant. And I unfortunately discovered that, a couple months after selling the book <laughs> would have been so much easier. Yeah. You could have had that. It would have been so much easier if I just had that. But yeah, I, I had to get to the same conclusion over like months of, yeah. Anyway, um, but but yeah, it, it is, to me, it was an interesting city to, to set the book in um, because it made, vis- like it's very good city to set a social novel in, I guess, in a sense, like it, Dickens would have appreciated it because like so many things are visible that would be hidden elsewhere. Um, it's also, I mean, this is, and a lot of what I say might be just confabulation that like, uh, I wanted an excuse to write about Vegas because I was there and it was an interesting experience and I wanted to set a story there. But, um, but it you've is been definitely, to other, I mean, yeah. you've been to other casinos around the world. There's yeah. something uniquely American about Vegas, you know, I mean, Macau or Monte Carlo, those are casino towns, but not in the way that Vegas is a casino town. It's one of the few uniquely American cities, I feel like. Hmm. Um, so, so in a way, I mean, how did you approach that? Like as an, as an outsider, as a poker sort of professional you're an insider you know how did you feel 
welcome there or were you pretty alienated from the American experience or how, how was your, what was your state of mind like being there? And is Tommaso kind of uh, an embodiment of some of, some of your experiences with like American excess, like the descriptions of food of the poker players just getting like free buffet food were, are like hilarious and like strike me as, you know, very much like uh, sort of a takedown of American excess and, uh, all that kind of stuff, you know, or like, uh, I mean, I don't know about a takedown cause I'm very like, <laughs> I'm in no position to take anything down. Honestly, I, or maybe just I, like what, like sheer wonder and amazement at like the, there is, there is like, excess, there is definitely you know, like, yeah. amazement and like, like the, the sheer abundance of everything yeah. is, is definitely something that, uh, is striking when you first see it because mm-hmm. it, you, you actually cannot find that anywhere else or it definitely not in Italy anyway. In that in that vein, in that in the the way it's presented there, um, I would say Vegas was extremely welcoming, and it, it, it like most places, um, I find where uh, people come from a lot of different places, it tends to be extremely welcoming of of, of, of people from from uh, from other countries. I was it was extremely easy to feel like a person who lived in Vegas pretty quickly because mm-hmm. if you've been in Vegas longer than a week, you're already been <laughs> right, there right. longer than you've been there longer than a lot of the people you meet, obviously not about not longer than all the people who actually live there and have grown up there of which there are very many, but like um, of the people you meet in casinos, when you play poker, most of them have been there weekend at the most. So um, right. there's definitely, it is a welcoming city in that respect. And obviously you, you, it's very easy to form habits there because um, I mean, obviously playing poker, that kind of poker is an extremely, uh, it, it's a game of habits. It has to be, otherwise it, it's impossible to play. Right. So yeah, no, I, I did feel like I lived there and was very welcome there very quickly, for sure. Um, I don't know whether uh, Tom's experience, the muscle's experience is, uh, is similar to mine in significant ways I mean, all all, yeah. char- all the characters in the book have some element of me and, and sure. i think that's almost inevitable um but uh tomato's story is definitely uh unique to him and very different to uh to mine and to that of many people uh who came to vegas to play professionally he, he goes to vegas as it, it's kind of an accident that he ends up yeah. there right um he comes it's very much not yeah, it's very much not planned. He's not a poker fan. He's not a poker enthusiast. He doesn't like think he's gonna make a living playing poker. That's not what he what he's there for. So like, I I like I tend to like this type of character in books when I encounter that the kind of character who sees the world in amazement and kind of constantly discovers the new in the world because uh, uh, I I think it's a very nice character to to root for to have in a book because totally. we like to see the world with those eyes i love i like to see the world to to look at the world with tom's eyes and then mm-hmm. kind of like be amazed by how big a buffet is i really like that <laughs> i think it's a it's a cool experience that like most days i'm too jaded and cynical and and upset to do but mm-hmm. but when you do get to do that it's i i, I like that yeah how long was your stint in vegas how long did you live there um I mean, on and off because I was also traveling to other places, as, as Matt pointed out. Uh, but I would say a little over three years, and then I okay, kept so going. pretty significant, yeah. Yeah, yeah, it's a pretty significant thing. Mm-hmm. Well, and Tom, he truly loves 
like Slim Jims. He truly loves. <laughs> he, sure truly, <laughs> he truly. He truly loves. Um, just a brand name, but oh, fair. <laughs> yeah, he yeah, beef jerkies. Um, I was the brand name in the book. I thought it was Slim Jims, but oh, yeah, um, yeah. he truly loves this sort of experience that he's going through, and you know, I do think that's rare. Uh, I feel like that in social media a lot, where it sort of prioritizes complaints and grief and worry and stress over someone genuinely enjoying something like that's pretty rare that sort of wonderment um but i wanted to ask you too about you know interleaving his plot and all of these plots like how did you approach this structurally i'm assuming it took a while to write because the book is fairly long it's it's over 600 500 500 pages or so and so you know just just plot wise how do you decide when to sort of shift the, you know, make those breaks and move things around? And I w- just structurally, I want to ask your your thought process on the on the, how that worked for you. Um, yeah. So the book was written over maybe around two and a half years, honestly, because it pretty much coincided, I guess, with the length of the MFA I did. And uh, so more or less two and a half years. And um, structurally, it was pretty much written in the order that it it appears. So the chapters were pretty much written in that order. I didn't write like Ray's entire story or Marianne's entire story and then braided them together. It was pretty much written in the same order. I think it really worked well for me because that type of writing worked really well for me because as a first time novelist, I mean, I'm still like a first time writer pretty much. Like I don't know what I'm doing even now that I'm writing the second one. But uh, when I was writing the first one, particularly, I really felt like I needed to escape from the story I was writing into other stories. It was really good that like, I didn't have to constantly write the same character because I, I very frequently ended up hating what I was writing and having the opportunity to switch to a completely different character. Um, Maybe I didn't hate where that character was at the at the moment. I hated where Ray had landed, but Tom was having a fun time, so I could like switch to that and write a chapter for that. Yeah, um, or like Lindsay was having interesting things that were happening to her. So there's um, so there was definitely that kind of uh, like that structure was probably born of of my own like out of my own desire to to amuse myself while I write and to have a, a tolerable time writing. Cause I think I, I really value having fun writing. I think like consistently I find myself that the, the things that I think work better in the book are the ones that I had the most fun writing and I can really tell where I was having fun writing. I think it's um, so I, I really try to chase that, that uh, I, I think it tends to, to, to bring about better writing. Mm-hmm. Um, and then as, as the overall structure in terms of the overall structure, I am uh, not what like Sadie Smith would call a seat up your pants kind of writer. I definitely do outline furiously and, and diligently all the time, mm-hmm. but those outlines are not um, permanent. Like I, I change the outline constantly. So maybe um, at all times that I'm writing, there is kind of an outline of how the entire book is going to go, except like the following week, a chapter later, that outline will be changed completely. It just like, it makes me feel uh, okay if I know that I know where I'm going, but that that place where I'm going will change constantly. So by the time I get to the end of the book, the book is very different from what I thought it was going to be at the beginning. It's, it's kind of controlled chaos. Like it's uh, organized <laughs> chaos. 
Yeah. Well, well and cool. that and that statement about having fun, I think, is really key and is really evident, and it shows uh, in your work and that you did have mm-hmm. a lot of fun, uh, especially incorporating some of the what we might call like postmodern elements. And there are you know footnotes in the book. There are a couple of drawings in the book. There is some formatted email correspondence. There is uh, some screenplay uh, formatting from a YouTube video of Trevor. So, you know, is is that what you had some of the fun with? Or what was your thinking in, in putting those different sorts of formats in the book? Yeah, I mean, I guess that was, uh, there's also the the sheer fact, honestly, that uh, when you write a first book, you want to kind of throw everything you have at it and then kind of... Sure, uh, yeah. Sure. So there was that. Uh, so like for, for anybody who doesn't like that stuff, I apologize. I'm not going to do that again. I'm really sorry. Uh, but <laughs> I loved it. Uh, I loved it too. Yeah. Was, especially I mean, the email correspondence from like the, the company owner. Gifty. That, yeah. That gifty. I'm so glad. Loved it. Yeah. I think like the, the, the idea was that at some point, fortunately, I think very early on, I think like with that, the, the first interlude that is in the book where I described the Positano hotel, that was, the second thing I wrote, the first thing was the first Ray chapter. The second thing was that interlude. And that was the moment where I, I wrote that, that interlude in like uh, an afternoon. And, and it felt like, okay, this is how I need to write this book. Mm-hmm. I need to not care about making it normal. And I need to not care about whether there's too much poker in it or whether it sounds pretentious to have a screenplay at one point which it does. I'm sure it does. I'm sorry. Uh, I need to not worry about whether, uh, you know, people are going to see footnotes in raised chapters and immediately say like, oh, Wallace, Wallace, wannabe. <laughs> I, I need to not care about that stuff. Because if I started yeah. caring about that stuff, and my brain does, like I will have that constant voice in my brain. Uh, I, I'm just not going to write. So I can either not write or I can write not caring about this stuff. And that's why it was really important to be in an MFA because in the MFA, I had to write. I had to write because I had a workshop deadline and I had to come yeah, up exactly. with stuff. Um, I was lucky enough that I didn't have anything else. Like I didn't have like a portfolio of old stories that I'd written in like undergrad that I could just like give whenever I didn't have a, a, a story to submit for a workshop. I really didn't have anything. Like that was my first book. That was the first thing I had. So I really had to produce pages because there were deadlines looming and you know, in three weeks I had to, you know, deliver 30 new pages or 40 new pages. So uh, that kept me, that like prevented me from caring about the consequences or or, like prevented me from doubting too much whether, yeah. yeah, Overthinking like, is this too pretentious? Is this too ambitious? Is this too reminiscent of this writer? Is this boring? Is this too much poker? I just didn't, allow myself the luxury of, of having those doubts. And I think that's the only way that book could be written. Uh, obviously now that I don't have the deadlines that the, all those doubts are definitely in my head. And... <laughs> we'll, we'll see where that goes. Yeah. Were you, were you able to leverage a lot of the stuff in this book during your MFA? Like was some of the stuff you're writing for this novel, like stuff you were submitting in classes or was this yeah, yeah. completely on the side? Okay. No, no, no. This this was my entire MFA submission. Okay. Like, yeah, yeah. Uh, so you, <laughs> uh, got, you got still, credit for this. That's good. <laughs> School. <laughs> I mean, still, like, there, there's so, uh, like, even in a full MFA of two years, like, you don't submit that many times. Like, there's maybe, yeah. like, 
I don't know, like 10, 12 workshops you do in total. So like a few of this of the chapters have been in there, but like probably nothing past the halfway point of the book. Mm -hmm. Mostly it was like the first half of the book, but yeah. yeah. You know, for me, when I started reading the book, uh, where it really took off was in the ping pong section. And when I got to that part, I was like, wow, I have never read a ping pong match quite like this. <laughs> and uh, I, one, I, I think it just showcased your writing overall. And I, I was really excited to keep reading. So once I got to that, that section, and also in like the first few pages, there's a slight mention of Google Maps and like this is totally just for me because I'm obsessed <laughs> with Google Maps so any yes, writers that put anything about Google Maps or Google Street View out there I'm like silently cheering them on um, but <laughs> but we wanted to ask if you would be willing to read a section from that ping pong scene yeah for sure for sure yes um, I'm gonna maybe select a little bit of it a chunk of it but I think sure. it can be yeah let's, let's try that Hang on. take it away I don't know if I need to set it up or anything, or it, it kind of sells itself. But uh, yeah, so this is pretty early on in the book, right, Ray? Ray it is the, pretty is... pretty early on. Yeah, I yeah. think it's uh, yeah, it's a it's professional not a online poker player for people who are going to read this book, <laughs> plot wise. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, it's a professional poker player who's uh, having a career crisis because he has had trouble winning online now for a few months. And now he's uh, back home for Thanksgiving um, and thinking of moving to Vegas to play live. And on Thanksgiving, he plays a ping pong match with a neighbor kid. Um, and this is, I guess, uh, from we take it from like halfway through the match, I guess. All right. Ray had a two-point lead in the fourth set when the parents arrived. It must have been halftime in the upstairs game. Or maybe it was over. How long had they been down there? But now Ray's mom and dad, who probably couldn't see much to be honest, and Mr. Wong were standing at the head of the stairs, watching from above without coming down to join the kids and the dog. The weirdness of the situation was not lost on Ray. A grown man, which he was, wasn't he? Drenched in perspiration playing ping pong in the basement of his childhood home against a smiling, distracted high school kid. Respective parents spectating at a distance and talking like their sons were on the swings of the playground. The dog still staring at him, a red triangle of tongue permanently sticking out from his resting face. Ray's little cousins shouting at encouragement. He missed the serve, badly. And why was it that the people who turned out to be good at ping pong were always these kind of like fake nerds? Like this kid here. Clearly obsessive, but not cripplingly anxious. Weird, but nonchalant. The kind of people who will stay at the table to play another game when everybody else has moved on to beers and mingling but also the kind social enough to be around humans to play often. Essentially well-adjusted geeks. And wait, did he think this guy was good now? This kid who was now doing these stupid O's of admiration mid-rally? With the set tied to eight after a missed return on another spin-heavy serve, Ray found himself so scared of losing and having to play a deciding fifth set that he started simply defending, sheepishly sending the ball over the net without trying to attack, just hoping his opponent would make a mistake. But the one kid did not attack, not even when provoked to. He just kept working his spins, switching his angles, hitting it short and then long, left and then right. And then Ray missed, and again. A lucky shot kept him in the game on his last serve, but now the one kid had, had a set ball on his serve, 10 to 9. 
One thing anybody who has played any game with a strong mental component will know is that planning and strategizing is one thing, but executing, going through with it in the heat of the moment is a whole different enterprise. Ray, who was known in the poker community as one of the best thinkers under pressure and keepers of one's cool, did not understand why he was suddenly so aware of the joint in his right wrist, stiff, frozen, as he, as he tried to put weight on his forehand. He knew he needed to attack the loopy floaters the kid kept offering him, and yet he kept returning weak and flat, just to keep the rally going, just trying not to miss. As the rally got longer and longer, he felt himself drifting out of it, becoming aware of the dimly lit basement and the rhythmic sound of the ball and the smell of the dog, aware of being watched, of his parents and the children, and felt sure he was going to lose it. He was going to miss the next forehand or the next one or the one after that. But he didn't. He somehow found his focus again. And all of a sudden, his wrist was fine, loose and responding to his commands. And the next forehand was a strong inside-out topspin to his opponent's forehand side, right on the corner between baseline and sideline. Perfect. And that's when the one kid stretched awkwardly and with an ugly move managed to chop a lame lob that just shaved the side of the table on Ray's left sideline and caromed away and landed on Pushkin's moist snout, set long. <laughs> That's great. And one thing I, lo I love about this, too, is it shows this sort of ruthless competition that, you know, Ray has to have as, a, as an online player. Mm -hmm. But in reality, you show also that poker is like a very long game and that once yeah. these guys have bankrolls, you know, they're working at it 12, 15 hours a day. And it's pretty dull until they do get an opening, until the right opponent shows up and they get the right hand, then they have to ruthlessly attack. Mm -hmm. So it's sort of this, you know, whereas ping pong can be very dull if it's just volleying, 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 volleying back and forth and back and forth. But when there is an opening, that's whenever the sort of ruthless character has to come out. And, you know, it sh I think it shows race still has that awareness. Um, am I am I off base on that? No, 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 absolutely not. I, I think the thing with poker is that it, it has to be dull. If it's not dull, you're not doing it right. If you are getting excited about a specific hand, you're probably not a very good player, at least like not a very good cash game player. Uh, cash game being the, not the tournament version, so the version in which you just play with money and it's just forever the same. There's no like, you know, end to the game. There's no winner at the end of the game. Uh, so it has to be dull. It has to be the same every day and kind of flatline. And you kind of win because at the end of the month, you've won more times than you've lost. But it, it, if, if there's big, like, emotional swings, you're not doing it right. Mm -hmm. And to me, Ray has this problem because he's still, he's still very mad at the fact that he's a human. Uh, that's his, like, main <laughs> problem at the beginning of the book, that he really wishes he and could not just a be... Computer. Yeah. yeah, he just really wishes he could be an AI and he could just yeah. not make those silly human mistakes of actually caring and, you know, getting... The, the heart beating faster when he gets aces in poker and like being excited about playing a big hand. And he knows that he shouldn't. He knows that he should not care because a hand doesn't matter. And to me, it was interesting to see him with that mentality in a game like ping pong, which is so, uh, I mean, like tennis and you know, mm -hmm. we, we all know. Uh, it's so uh, different. It's so based on your you know, psychology and, and like handling your, your emotions, but it also is exciting and it has to be exciting. There is like a deciding point. And, and like, I think he's like extremely 
not used to there being the deciding point, the point where he can't miss. Yeah. Whereas yeah. like in poker, there there should never be that, that, that. You should never be in that position. There is never a poker hand that you can't lose, that it's a disaster if you lose it. So to him, his brain doesn't really compute that kind of, or, or like he wishes he he could approach life not that way, but uh, he mm-hmm. he is excited. He is nervous about playing the deciding point. He is scared about the fact that if he makes a mistake, he's going to lose the set. And that makes him a worse poker player, which is right. fun to me. It was fun to me to, to put him in that position because like Ray is an extreme version, uh, which doesn't mean not realistic. Like there's plenty of poker players like him, but a pretty extreme version of where you can take poker mentality. Um, and I do know that like uh, that's where it gets. Like that's where it gets you. That's 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 how you end up. Like with like a, a real like fear of making mistakes or, or like the feeling the more like human parts of you as yeah. yeah. Like feeling that the more human parts of you are the parts that are holding you back, which is absurd. But that's kind of how they approach it. I guess. Mm-hmm. Well, and and I didn't feel that it was like a cautionary tale against poker either. That there's actually no, quite. I, I quite like a, poker. Right, there's quite a bit in here that I think is encouraging to say there is value to to games. I mean, one of the the epigraphs at the beginning of the book sort of says like, uh, well, "Shit!" Now that I mentioned, I should probably read it. But, um, <laughs> oh, I think I think it was the, the the epigraph in the essay. The yeah, it, it was the epigraph of the essay. I apologize, but it, right. it, it was not Gramsci or Thatcher. Gramsci. <laughs> Gramsci. <laughs> Too, too many epigraphs. I should, I should another thing I, I should stop. I know I like That's that, really. but, uh, <laughs> but I, I, nice. I think it's just what, my point is that you know you're you're not moralizing against poker or even Vegas per se, is so much as saying there is actual value in games, and I think. That's something we don't see in literature a lot is people taking, especially poker, something like poker really seriously and, and not just, you know, condemning it as like, oh, well, this is a way to lose money and it's a waste of time or something. I, I don't yeah. think you ever treat it that way. No, I mean, I, first of all, I don't I never feel like I have the authority to, to criticize anything, honestly. But uh, <laughs> but with poker, it would be completely hypocritical if I did. Like it was such a big part of my life. I, I enjoyed doing it. I, I enjoyed doing it. I have my uh, issues with it sometimes, but like I, I don't hate it. I, I, I there are things I like about it. I think it's very interesting. And, and a lot of things can be really interesting if you put a lot of thought into how they work and analyze them deeply games, especially, but like I've, I've, you had Kyle Beachy on the podcast recently. And like, yeah, if you, if you really think about skateboarding a lot, like you can come up with really interesting stuff uh, because like these things, especially like games are really interesting things that we, that we do. Like there is like so much thought that goes into them and, 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 and then they influence our lives in so many interesting ways. So to me, um, while this is very much not a poker novel, and we've discussed all the ways in which it isn't, and it's uh, right. <laughs> has like other, other a, a different scope, but like, yeah, there, there's poker in it, and and like I I very much wanted to spend some time thinking about this because it has been a part of my life, and I wanted to, I think I could provide some interesting, possibly insight into what that world is like. Yeah, yeah, Matt, you said this last with with Kyle that like someone said to you, this is a book about skateboarding. And you're like, well, I've never stood on a skateboard before. You can still find yourself being really enthralled by the book if it 
you know, has a really insightful take and it has deep analysis and it, and it teases out like the big things about what it means to be human through this activity that a lot of people happen to enjoy. Right. Like I think well, of like a naked singularity, which I read recently, Sergio de la Pava, and he's got sections where he talks about like boxing in the seventies and the eighties and the, and the pros that were involved in like a lot of stuff about really specific matches and, I'm not like a boxing enthusiast by any means. I've like hardly ever watched boxing, but I found myself going on YouTube and like watching a lot of these matches that he was talking about because if a really good writer writes about something that you don't know about, that's like a specific subculture, they can really pique your interest, right? So whether that's poker or tennis or skateboarding or whatever. Yeah, I, I, I find myself deeply drawn to to expertise in, in, totally. in writing like when about I, this universe that I don't know I really about. like that I like yeah, if, I, if a book manages to tell me a story but also give me an insight into something I don't know and teach me about it from a really from a position of like someone who knows about it I, I really yeah. enjoy that I do understand that not all, all books should do that or can do that and you know I'm probably not ever going to be able to do that about another thing because like there's limited <laughs> right. things I know. But yeah, yeah. but about about this, I was glad that I could like write about something that I knew this deeply and with like um, mm-hmm. yeah. If I if in any way I can provide that kind of experience, since it's an experience I really enjoy when I read books, uh, I'm yeah. very happy about that. Uh, I wanted to ask you about one mm-hmm. of my favorite characters in the book, which is Orson, who is Lindsay's yeah. brother. Yeah, yeah. And he, the Mormon scholar, he is working on a very long writing project. Um, he's sort of uh, depressive. He is yeah. sort of um, dependent on other people. Um, he's part of a very large family, and he kind of goes off on this quest in a way for like about Howard Hughes's will just sometimes mm-hmm. called the Mormon will. Uh, and it's a crazy story about maybe Howard Hughes left his fortune to this random guy who picked him up on the side of the road oh, yeah. one time yeah. written on like a sheet of paper. That is all, like, I didn't make you know. that up. That's a, no, 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 a real that's, possible story. And, yeah. and yeah, in yeah. fact, I wrote like a research paper on this when I was like in fifth grade. About the Mormon <laughs> really? will. So, uh, I was fascinated by, I don't know why I was like 11 years old and I was it's fascinated. extremely fascinating. Yeah. The Mormon will. Yeah. Um, but, but Orson in that relationship with his, his sister, um, you know, I wanted to, to ask you what, uh, what went into your, to your thought process in, in creating that character in the relationship, um, between the, the two siblings. Um, I'm so glad you like that character. Uh, and you like the two siblings. I, 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 they are in so many ways, kind of my favorite thing about the book. I'm really glad that you like that. Um, they're, um, I, I guess in some ways, like they are the only writer characters in the book, both Lindsay and, and Orson, which, you know, it, it's, I, I, don't, I don't know that I, I, I necessarily love, you know, novels about writers or, or stuff. Like I, I don't write about writers all that time, but like if I have like 60 characters, I might as well have a couple who write. Um, and, uh, and Lindsay and Orson are different ways uh, have definitely different approaches to writing and, and write in different ways and for different reasons. Mm-hmm. I think um, they are both in many ways kind of the intellectual conscience of the novel in some ways. They are probably the more aware characters in some ways, the ones who um, question things a bit more. Um, and um, And to me, this was really interesting that they would be storytellers because 
uh, thematically, I feel like uh, the a lot of the book is about narratives. It's about stories and specifically about the stories that are in culture and in, in the discourse about how we should live our lives. Mm-hmm. Um, in, in a way, like I, I, I tell myself that this is as much a book about a time as it is about a place. So it is about Las Vegas, but it's also very much about a specific time, which is, you know, 2014, 2015, which to me was um, a time that was a kind of the tail end of the first decade of social media, the end of the first era of social media in a way. And it was this time where like all these like conflicting narratives about how to live our lives is like big cultural uh, uh, stories um, started clashing. And then like, obviously it's after 2016, they became what like we call the culture wars now and they're like everywhere and we can't not see that. But in 2014 and 2015, they were all there. They were like bubbling in the, in the culture. It was just harder to, I guess, see it or like I was uh, to, I don't know, self-obsessed and drawn to poker to actually notice what was going on. Um, but I was really interested in all these uh, stories. So for example, uh, Orson is very uh, interested in the the communitarian nature of Mormonism. He's not like, he, he's not himself uh, a believer anymore, but he really cares about Mormon history in, in the way that it's uh, community-based and communitarian. Mm-hmm which uh, to him is a very rare thing in, in contemporary America. And so he's interested in that, in, in that, like in, the, in, in, a, in a culture that was uh, very different and kind of born out of like kind of individual self-actualized uh, um, will. Uh, he, he, he's really interested in this like community that, was, that always emphasized this, this community aspect and sharing resources and stuff like that. Uh, but he's also very aware of all the contradictions and he's like obsessed with uh, all the relationships between the Mormon church and the casino owners because all yeah. the loans that the Mormon banks went sent to, to casino, casino owners over the years and, and how much of Vegas was built by Mormon funds. And I think he is in some way, in many ways, the intellectual conscience here. Like he is also, I mean, without spoiling stuff, he's also the one who is he and Lindsay are the one who are most aware of the kind of sketchy things that are happening at the fringes of the story and that end up mm-hmm. um, playing a major role in the kind of plot, I guess. Um, so they are the more culturally aware and they are they're the, the Lindsay more the Lindsay Orson storyline is the only one that features some conversations that are more about uh, storytelling and the culture. So they are the slightly meta-literary characters in there. <laughs> yeah. And they are the only ones I allowed myself because, like, God knows this book is pretentious enough as it is. So, like, <laughs> I, I limited it to a little bit. Hopefully it's okay. I'm really glad you like them, though, because I'm really fond of those, I think. Well, um, I really enjoyed writing them. So. I, I, you know, I, I did really um, get that sense that... It, even in a sort of debased culture that's pure consumerism in a big enough scenario, there are always these people on the the sides who are um, commenting on the fact of it, that it doesn't go unnoticed or unchecked. And I think Vegas itself does have a weird history with um, journalism and, uh, you know, constant crime perceived uh, versus this like huge religious community. I think that's an interesting juxtaposition that, that does exist there uh, mm-hmm. in sort of the westward expansion of the United States as part of the history there. It was a, 
settled by you know Utah and you know Mormons who spread all across this sort of desolate valley. Uh, and the same opportunity that they saw was seen by you know mobsters and casino owners as mm-hmm. as a sort of anti America in a way or or pure America I don't know um, yeah the, well the freedom and lawlessness of frontier America I guess or right. uh, whatever that narrative is and I think it's interesting that Orson and, and Lindsay are the ones who question these narratives are the ones who have the actual conversation about like. Um, if it's all narratives, if it's all stories, like if, uh, you know, uh, communitarianism or like if, if uh, unionization and labor, and the labor movement and solidarity is a story, but also, you know, um, influencer culture. So Trevor, YouTube stars, and yeah. like that's, a, that's, an, that's another narrative. And like, maybe we should chase that and we should chase that kind of uh, self-actualization and, and I don't know, uh, personal um affirmation um lindsay and mormon uh, lindsay and orson sorry are the ones who who do question and and do have conversations about this and to me it was very much a thing that in 2014-2015 was there Uh, there were all these things there was uh, a lot of uh, cultural phenomenon that were like starting them and like wouldn't really come to to explode in the in the discourse until a couple of years later, but like at the time they were all there. I was just blind to them at the time, right. and it, it was so interesting to me to write about it because what I felt was when like 2016 happened and like thinking about it years later, I looked back from New York and I looked back on it and I thought like, wait, you were there? Like I was there in Vegas in 2014, where like some of the people who played poker there were pickup artists. And we're talking about this, you know, manosphere crap all the time, um, or like not all the time, but they go, like they mention that stuff. And like at the time, I didn't make the mental connection, or like um, you don't see these like big movements or these like ideas, or I didn't see them. I guess like I, I personally didn't see the the ideas that like would uh, explode in the culture just a couple years after. Um, and it might have been because I was very distracted by just playing poker, but also it is because because these narratives are are sneaky. Like these narratives are there, and and they clash on social media a lot. They clash in in the in the discourse, and uh, it's it's difficult to 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 see where they will lead. Uh, I think it's it, it was interesting to me to set the novel in a time in a place because it feels like 2014 2015 was a time where like these stories were coming out and we're like, oh, oh, you should live like this. You should care about solidarity or you should care about individualism. And at the same time, setting it in Vegas, which is the city where there's no should whatsoever. It's do whatever <laughs> you want. And it's completely decoupled from consequences, at least in theory, at least in, as the marketing line goes, what you know, what happens in Vegas, Vegas. stays in Vegas. <laughs> like it's, it's just do whatever. Like I'm never going to tell you what to do. You do you. This is the city where you can do it all. So I, it was interesting to me to see this kind of like baby culture wars that were like coming up and starting in, in, in that time, but to set it in Vegas. And like I said before, this is confabulation. That's probably not why I wrote it in Vegas. I probably wrote it in Vegas because I lived there and it was yeah. cool to write about it. But I think that's that's how I came to rationalize it. I was writing it as I was writing it. 
Have you ever seen those Christian t-shirts that say, what happens in Vegas, stay in the mind of God for all eternity? <laughs> no, I have not. That sounds fantastic. I saw that once and I laughed so <laughs> That is amazing. Well, and, and that, that mentioned that, you know, these, these things were exploding in the culture. It's not a spoiler to say yeah, I was just that this d- does actually all of the narrative threads sort of come to a climax in an actual explosion inside the casino. Yeah. Um, Which is not a spoiler because you foreground the novel in the prologue with it this is in the prologue, sort of yeah. explosive event. So it's, it's in there. the jacket copy of the book too. It's in the description. Also, right. yeah. And um, speaking of which, I, uh, we, we, in our emails, I said, I would love to read the prologue, which is uh, about two pages or so as uh, as like the framing device for how this novel sort of wants us to think about Vegas, how it wants us to think about kind of that simulacrum that Matt talked about. Uh, but also like those just juxtapositions of like there are just people who live and work here and that's their life and then there's you know the people who come for the weekend and all that kind of stuff so to give our audience a little bit more of your prose and a little bit more of like what they can expect when they start reading this book here's the prologue everything was at once extraordinary and dull there you go there's your intro dazzling and quotidian to the visitors it was exotic and tantalizing and new and as inebriating as advertised. They were dizzied by the lights, addled by the sounds. The city had them in its thrall, but it was ordinary to us, mundane and unremarkable. We'd grown accustomed to the lights, blinking out of darkened aisles. We were deaf to the digital tremble of the machines, the laughter of the drunks. A visitor's once in a lifetime was our every day. This is the first paradox about Las Vegas. The Positano luxury resort and casino was the beating heart of Friday night euphoria, and it was our home. It sat center strip, the city spreading round it like a widening spiral of magic and commonplace. Strip clubs and college dorms, shooting ranges and Walmarts, private jet landing strips and bus stops to quiet, distant, hopeless suburbs. We can't explain about the fire without establishing this, that a town can be both fiction and reality, both paradise and home. We all here have to come to terms with it sooner or later. Then there was the money. Inside the neon-lit darkness of the Positano, herds of visitors roamed our halls, chasing it. They bounced from wall to wall, from distraction to distraction, letting the room slowly guide them to its center, its raison d'etre, the gaming pits. The color of the playing chips turned into money, into a fantasy. Blue for one dollar, red for five, green for twenty-five, black for one hundred. Purple for 500, yellow for 1,000, beautiful white flags for $5,000, their edges striped in patriotic red and blue. We still long for them after all these years. Behind glass cases on the table's chip banks, in the hands of pit bosses and dealers, in the satchels of the high rollers, we look at them, we ache for them. Everything here is about money. When it looks like it's not about money, then it's definitely about money. This is the second paradox. That the money, too, is both fictional and real, both exhilarating and tragic, both there and not there. The town itself embodies this, glittering and triumphant, but hidden away from prying eyes in the middle of an unforgiving desert. The only truly free market in America, free of guilt, free of shame. We cannot think of the fire without asking ourselves what role money played, how much of the night had its roots in those silly little discs of color-coded clay. The crowds in the casino hallways, the conversations in the cocktail lounge, the deals struck in elegant offices on the highest floors, 
the high-stakes Texas Hold'em in the upstairs poker room. You don't spend as many years in Las Vegas as we have, treated daily to the sight of fortune's changing hands, without learning to question the nature of these things. We can't help it. Finally, there are the stories, the third and hardest paradox. Because the more Las Vegas seems but a loose collection of unrelated individuals, the more its inhabitants, both temporary and permanent, look like isolated segments of life that don't link up together, disparate narratives incapable of producing any meaning, the more the city demands that they connect. A city that wasn't built to be lived in, perhaps the only in America, defined for us by the memories of pen-happy visitors and weekend drunks. The idea of a town. It's in the stories of those who stay that Las Vegas exists, in the low constant hum below the chiming and music, in the real city they created, against all odds, at the heart of a glorified theme park. We cannot begin to explain the night of Friday, May 1st, 2015, at the Positano, the bomb at the Scarlatti Lounge, the sound of the alarm, the blackout, who made it out and who, tragically, did not, without trying to summon, at least in fragments, the stories of the ones who were there. Their stories are part of our story, and ours is part of theirs. We wish we could do more. This is not going to be easy. So that's the that's the first thing that the reader reads coming to this that, book. That is, yeah, it is one of the very last things I wrote for the book, but it is the very okay, first interesting. thing. Yeah, I was going to ask yeah. because you know yeah. it encapsulates a lot of the sort of philosophical themes of the book and how you're thinking about Vegas and all the like socioeconomic yeah. class stuff that's going on. No, I, I always knew that there was going to be a thing, a prologue, but like I didn't actually let myself write it until much, much later. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. So what, what sort of went into that decision to make this kind of proleptic prologue where you like are going to say that there is a big culminating explosive event uh, and then here is the here is the story of that for the rest of the book? Um, well, uh, I mean, it, it is arguably a bit gimmicky, I guess, but uh, I like gimmicks. Um, <laughs> it's um, well, the thing is, like, I'm really interested in plot. As a reader, I like plots. Yeah. I like yeah, wanting yeah. to know what happens. I like turning totally. the page fast. And I I really like plots. I really like thinking of plots. I structure plots a lot. I take notes about plots of things I read and watch all the time. So I'm, I'm really interested in that. And to me, it was really important once I started. So I started with the idea, I'm going to write a book, a book about Vegas because I'm in an MFA and I have to write a book and I'm going to write a book about <laughs> Vegas. <laughs> <laughs> but but then um, then that quickly morphed into, for example, like the idea of like, oh, I'm going to write a memoir of my experience there never even crossed my mind. It never occurred to me to do that. So my first instinct was I'm going to write a social novel about Vegas because that's what I like to read. So I'm going to write a social novel about Vegas. Mm -hmm. And then as I started, you know, writing it and I felt like, OK, social novel, but also kind of postmodern stuff because I like to make stuff up and invent weird hotels that don't exist and i really like naming things i really get like that's the most fun i have when i get to name restaurants and hotels and stuff like that i should mm -hmm. do that as for a living that should be my job to name things <laughs> i really like that <laughs> anyway so like i started realizing okay social novel but also some postmodern thing and trickery mm -hmm. and having fun yeah and then i really like it, it kind of occurred to me like i really really would like this to be fun to read and i read that dario and was like damn, I'm hooked. Like, I'm, I'm so here glad. for the rest of this novel now. Yeah. yeah. I, I mean, I'm so glad. Thank you. I mean, the impression was like, <laughs> all of that is 
fine a social novel postmodern stuff whatever but like this has to be fun to read this mm -hmm. like i want the reader to want to know what happens i want yeah. the pages at least like once you get obviously it's a it's a book with like a million characters so the first half of the book is obviously going to be a bit slower that's impossible not to but uh once things get in motion i want things to go pretty fast i want the ending to be pretty fast and i think this this prologue was necessary to me because i knew that like oh this book is going to have a million characters uh, the first like 200 pages are not going to be you know breezy and fast so right. I, I really care about the plot working and i really want uh, the reader to want to know what happened. And uh, I like this idea of like this big like narrative promise and kind of mm -hmm. James Bond cold open with like a bomb going <laughs> <Totally>. out. <laughs> yeah. It's like, all right, so, hang in here for this. Like it's, it's yeah. going to be worth your time to hang in for. Yeah, like, please, please give me like yeah, 200, 250 pages of your time. And I yes. promise you eventually I'm going somewhere with <laughs> this. This will culminate. Totally. I, I'm yeah. going somewhere with this. Hopefully it's going to be okay. Yeah. No, well, I think it, it succeeds wildly on that level. And, and between the the sort of tech startup that pops up in Vegas and the uh -huh. unionization thing, I mean, it does seem like a visionary book where some of the predictions are starting to come true. And that it is yeah, scary. Is, yeah, I am very uh, scared about that. But yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, there, there are a couple of things. There are a couple of small and bigger things. I guess like there's one that happens very late in the book so i shouldn't like talk about it because it's like i guess a plot point in some ways but like that like i published the book and then uh, uh it, i i read in a, in a in a vegas paper that something like in a vegas newspaper that something like very very close to what i'd completely made up for the book was actually happening <laughs> uh which i find pretty wow. scary there was actually a fire at the bellagio uh, later like once i had already written the entire oh, thing it was wow. very bizarre it, yeah, there there were a, a few of these like bizarre instances um, of of making stuff up that like, I, I really do enjoy books that make stuff up. Uh, I seem to not be able to write without that. Um, even if I try to write realistic stuff, I would still end up making stuff up just because it's fun and it's really fun to come up well, with names for restaurants and bands that don't exist i don't know uh -huh. <laughs> and it's sort of the opposite of this you know the auto fiction movement right now and that there are people that still i think want and crave um you know tell me a story make it up like i want to hear that craft rather than just mm -hmm. reporting the the hellish reality we all live in already <laughs> yeah i mean obviously obviously like there's not like I don't want to be like, I'm not a, a reader of one thing, you know, I'll, I've read auto fiction that I've really liked. Um, so it's not like I hate it or anything. I don't personally write that uh, necessarily. And I seem to be better. Uh, it, it also comes down to like what you can write because like, you know, uh, it, it, not everything, like if I tried to write to, if I tried to write auto fiction, it probably would have been terrible. Um, there's also an issue of like what you can write. I think like, if I do have some some small talent in writing, it probably is in that kind of area of making up stuff that's interesting and uh, orchestrating plots and, and and trying to imbue them with meaning um, more than kind of holding up a mirror to to to, to myself uh, in a way that like I think is perfectly viable and, and creates good literature. I just I'm not good at that. I don't think I could write a good book that way. Maybe in a few years. I also really don't want to always be writing the same thing. So hopefully 
like whatever I write next will be not a social novel and not a like it will be it will still be me because like there's stuff that like I can't I can't get out of my system but um but hopefully like I'll try to write something different there's also yeah there's um there's a sense that um what you said like tell me a story make stuff up that's really the literature that has excited me more in life I feel like I don't want to like generalize this because like I said I've liked books that aren't like that but uh in some ways you can either be a Dickens person or you can be a Proust person, you know, and, and in that kind of divide, I, I feel slightly more of a Dickens person, if that makes uh-huh. sense. And that's like, and I really love Proust and that's okay. But like, um, when I, when I think of storytelling and what stories I can tell, uh, I am more in the tell me a story uh-huh. kind of camp, if that makes sense. It, it does make sense. And I think, uh, you can also change and become a different person, um, yeah. Later in life. But, you know, Dave and I both have two kids and uh, one of the most fun parts of having kids. There's not a whole lot, but there's a couple of fun <laughs> moments. One is uh, when you make up that list of names, like to name the kid, like that's actually Honestly, pretty yeah. fun because, yeah. you know, you do that. Let's say, you, you know, every time you have a kid, you, you got this list of names and there's that's actually pretty fun, like naming a whole actual human being. Yeah. And uh, yeah. this name is going to direct the course of your life on right. some level. It's going to go on a, a legal documents, like a birth certificate yeah. and things. Yeah. And we're just going to make it up. And I, I really found that to be fun. And so I wanted to ask yeah. you, you know, for people who don't know, Paradise, Nevada is a real town. Um, yeah. And it is, you know, you see it in the signs of driving around. It is a pretty striking thing to just say, this is freaking paradise, which yeah. is really like a synonym <laughs> for like heaven. Yeah. And I actually think there are very few people who treat it like as like it's heaven. This is actual paradise. Like Vegas's reputation or even Nevada's reputation is like a getaway place where we can escape our life and go and live in this. But that's not what you think of heaven is, right? Like I, I find that really striking that the the title paradise nevada talk to us a little bit about the title yeah so the subtitle too this town wasn't built on winners (laughs) that's the subtitle right 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 that's not on the cover but it's on the like the title page half title half title Mm -hmm. um yeah there were uh discussions but i wanted to keep that (laughs) but yeah it's um I'll, i'll get back to naming after because it's something that i'm really uh into clearly but um yeah, the, the, the title of the book, so for those who don't know, uh, and again, like, not that I'm this expert or anything, but like Paradise, Nevada uh, is, is the unincorporated town where most of what we think of Las Vegas actually is. The township of Las Vegas is actually what, uh, I guess, what we call North Las Vegas, but like, um, that's where the township of Las Vegas is. But most of the strip and the big casinos that we think of when we think of Las Vegas are not in the township of Las Vegas. They are in the unincorporated town of Paradise, Nevada. Um, for whatever real estate reason or tax reason, or yeah. I, I don't really, yeah, it's not like my area of expertise. So I don't, I can't ex- exactly explain why that is, but, um, but that's the case. So like when we think of like the airport and the, you know, the university, the big like casinos, they're all in, in Paradise, Nevada, which obviously to our writer is fascinating, but um, yeah. I, I, try not to to be too heavy handed with the metaphorical treatment of that. Like it's in the title because uh, let's be real, it, it, it's catchy, but also because it, it's, it's charming and fascinating to think about. 
but I tried not to be heavy-handed with it, like mentioning in the book all the time, like, oh, paradise, paradise. Um, it's, it's not there. Like, it, it's mentioned, like, really a couple of times. But, um, but it is something I thought about a lot because uh, I wanted, specifically, I really wanted to have at least one character. This is what we were talking about before. I wanted to have at least one character who presented the kind of unadulterated joy of visiting Vegas and loving it. Uh-huh. And and that's Tom. Like there is one character to whom Vegas is paradise, and he fights to stay there because so, he's yeah. found the place that he really loves. He's yeah. found the place where like he's grown up in the kind of suburbs of Rome, where like these like bright neon lights are associated with like urban squalor more than anything else. And now he's in a place where all these like neons are exciting and they look incredibly cool and um, there's so many of them and everything looks so abundant and there's so much food everywhere that like it feels like uh, a version of paradise like something that we associate with paradise i think like abundance of food and like buffets is something we associate with i think in a lot of religions like if you think of paradise you think there's going to be like lots of food everywhere and like the idea um of like there's like a scene where tom like gets really really excited about discovering a buffet in vegas and I really wanted to have a character who has that relationship with the town. And that, that one character couldn't have been a person who grew up there necessarily. It had to be like someone who comes in starry-eyed and just kind of yeah, was blown away by this place. And I wanted that because like, I think it's important to know that Vegas is that for a lot of people and has to be. Like, it, it, it is that. And, they, you know, there's also the 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 waiter who works there like is a city it's a southwestern city in the United States but there are like every year millions of people uh, a chunk of whom are not cynical and jaded as I am but like are starry eyed starry eyed and happy and really see that town as a freaking incredible place because it is incredible in so many ways in the very like literal sense of the word it is incredible it is it, it it it's dazzling it, it it's it confuses you it's something that you've never seen before unless you've been to macau which is kind of a odd replica of vegas without the people but um it's uh it, it's really it was really important to me so like without going overboard with the metaphor without being heavy and heavy-handed about paradise i really did want to preserve that sense of at least in one character. Again, if I'm going to have like a hundred characters, I might as well have one who does like one for every thing. And I I needed to have one to whom like this place really is paradise and sees it in like with unadulterated joy. So that was to me uh, important. And and going back to naming, like uh, my partner, I don't have kids ourselves, but like I do have nieces and nephews and I do like uh, very much, I did participate in the, or like I wanted to ask my sister to participate in the naming process and what I had strong opinions about it. I think I'm obsessed with naming things and I really like that. Um, the thing is like, I, I don't, I, I'm not the fastest, I guess like two and a half years to write a book is not too slow, but like I'm not the fastest writer. So I don't know how long it will take me to write the second novel I'm working on. And, uh, and I have a few ideas, but regardless of how long it takes me, I already have like so many names Tons of things of names. that I want to draw. Yeah. So like sometimes I have to make stuff happen just because, 
you know, I, I you have, have to a, be able to yeah, use this name. That's awesome. Like I have a fantastic name for a band and I have to have a concert scene now because like, damn <laughs> right. it, I, I want to drop that name. <laughs> I have a feeling this is how like Thomas Pynchon feels too, because he is <laughs> a master like, of naming characters. Yeah. I, a lot of my fiction kind of works that way where like, I have to make something happen to just use a really cool name that, if, and I, the, 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 the odd thing about it, not really, it's, it's sad, but like, most of the readers won't think that the name is particularly cool. I just amuse myself with it and I, I find it funny. <laughs> and That's so enough. like, in order to like, I have to go out of my way to craft a scene that kind of makes that one name work <laughs> because I really had fun coming up with it. But yeah. yeah That's great. One thing that our, te our test for naming our kids was, um, could this name you know reasonably be the name of a supreme court justice you know like is, no pressure no pressure no pressure right isabel laird a reasonable name for a supreme court justice and if it's too silly then for that you know would people take this seriously you know did you also balance that with other stuff like it was it just supreme court justice or like did you say could it work as a supreme court justice but also a rock star like was there because <laughs> like, um, guess... you want to keep options open i don't know yeah no not really the supreme court justice was the real true test but then there were also other factors of like you know family names names that were like you know winston is the name of our son so that was like rachel's beloved grandfather um who like all the grandkids loved and you know so that was like part of it too but could that name also be could it pass the supreme court justice test and I, we think it did <laughs> well it's amazing how much people do care about this though like yeah. you know when you're even saying like you know with your nieces and nephews of of how much the names matter to you. Um, you know, I, I see that as sort of like your book is your baby, right? And mm. uh, I'm, I'm also fascinated <laughs> by like alternate titles for books, like, you know, books that were renamed at the last minute. And I, I think that that happens when people really do care about um, naming. And, and, and to go back to the Paradise and Paradise Lost, it is sort of like one of the definitions of what makes someone a God and like God, like endows Adam and mm. Eve with this ability to like to name, name. Um, right. not just their children, but like fruits and all animals. of the animals and yeah. plants. And like, what a powerful thing that is, is just denominating different um, things. Uh, so you not you, there's another fake casino not fake fictional casino in this book, which is, I really loved the Shibuya, which yeah. is a sort of J Japanese themed yeah. casino. And mm. like, I'm really shocked that someone hadn't already made this because it, it, it seems so to me like I, I would, yeah <laughs> awesome. someone call me and, and let's like fund that it will yeah, be successful right. i promise if there's you. any I've been real estate enough, developers out it there it will be successful i promise <laughs> you it will be <laughs> oh, and it's like, so it's easy to tokyo, imagine like that. downtown tokyo themed casino would be a slam dunk like it would, it would be kill. so easy yeah. it would have like a craft whiskey bar like with japanese whiskeys and then yeah. it could have a, a japanese themed cirque du soleil show and it would work absolutely. All I, of I, the anime conventions would just, you know, huge anime conventions would be there. Oh um, yeah, totally. Clearly, I put put a lot of thought into this because, like, there's like a chapter in the book that I had to set there just because, like, I'd come up. I think like the Shibuya was, like, I, I wanted some of the casinos not to be real casinos because I wanted to have the strip being a mix of real casinos and not real casinos. Yeah. So I 
really came up with a few names and, and I started using them when I was referencing something. I was like, that thing is just off the Shibuya, for example. And then after a while, like I was writing this and I started realizing like, yeah, no, now I want a scene in it. Like, like I, I yeah. now I've come up with this Japanese casino. I, I really want to set a scene there. So I, I did. I, I, <laughs> that, and it again, works. this is how I write fiction. Yeah. But yeah, I ended up <laughs> setting a scene in that casino just because I wanted to describe the inside of what a downtown Tokyo casino would look like, which again, would absolutely work. I'm baffled that it doesn't exist already. Yeah. <laughs> Well, any real potential real estate developers can email uh, concavityshow at gmail.com. We'll put yeah. you in touch with Dario and we'll, <laughs> we'll get it off the ground. <laughs> but yeah. I, I really do um, appreciate you coming on the show today and taking the time to, to walk you. us through all of these decisions. It was really, um, yeah. like I say, one of the um, best books that I read last year. I put it on my list Absolutely. of top 2021 reads. And, um, you know, the we typically ask people what are they working on next? And you've already mentioned you've, you're working on something else. We don't need to go too much into that, but I can uh, you... vaguely like, <laughs> okay. If, if you want, um, but I do want to get to mentioning uh, another project you're working on is a translation. Yeah. Um, and it's uh, from English to Italian version of, do you want to tell us about what you're working on? Yeah. So like I've been doing a few literary translations now, which is, incredibly fun and so so good for a writer like if i encourage any any writer who speaks more than one language just do it even just for fun for yourself mm -hmm. because you learn so much about writing by translating um it's incredibly fun and fulfilling and thanks to uh, martina testa who was a friend uh who's a personal friend but also a, a guest of yours uh recently um yeah we are together translating Enter the Art Bark by Jessica Anthony, which is something that I'm overjoyed about because it was my absolute favorite book of last year. I, I was obsessed with that book for a while. I really loved That's it. And then I talked to Martina. Yeah. And then I was talking to Martina and discovered like she was she she had, like their her publisher bought the rights for it and they were publishing it. So we got to talking about it and we decided like, oh, it would be fun to translate this together as a kind of collaborative project. So I'm really excited about that. And that is um another yeah, one I mean, of our like, favorite books you know we we had just gone the show so well. good it's she, really so good it's so much yeah, fun it's bonkers. and yeah. she you know structured that book also with in her f first book as well with like the alternating points of view of two different yeah. you know characters so are you and martina going to divide the yeah. books like one of you translate every other part oh, no no no, no. <laughs> we're both going to do both oh, okay uh, yeah, yeah. How, how closely are you working with Jessica directly on translation stuff? Are you guys emailing a lot, asking her questions? We haven't, we haven't got to that yeah. point yet. Like okay, you yeah. get to the it's point where you start stages. collaborating a bit, a bit later, but yeah, we'll probably soon, I guess we'll, we'll, we'll want to get in touch for things, but That's yeah, awesome. and it's, it's really exciting. Like translating is, is, is so fulfilling as a thing because um, you still get to, I mean, I, I get to write in Italian, which is not as fun for me necessarily, but mm -hmm. I get to write from English, which is, it makes me, it forces me to really think of every sentence in a way that you don't as a reader, you know, yeah. uh, when you're reading a book, if you, if there's an image that didn't quite land for you or a joke that didn't exactly work for you, or just a metaphor that like you didn't want to pause for a second and think about and really consider, um, you can just like keep reading. Nobody's going to judge you for that. I do that all the time. But like, if you're translating, you have to understand every single word and you have to get what that image is yeah. and kind of render that 
So it makes you a much more careful reader. Obviously, you can't read books the way you translate them all, all the time. It would take you forever. But uh, it is it is it makes you think of sentence writing in a much more granular way. Um, and I really like. I, again, I'm a fan of English language. I really like English prose. I really like thinking about sentences. So being forced to do that like line by line with like great writers. I, I just finished translating Zadie Smith's uh, new play as well. And like having to like really getting to think sentence by sentence about the prose of a fantastic writer is is mm-hmm. it, it is pretty great. I would recommend it to any any writer who has the luck of like knowing at least like knowing two languages so that they can do one from the other. Yeah. That sounds awesome. Speaking of writers who are like familiar to, to our conversations from this show, you've got two endorsements on the back of your novel, one from Susan Choi, who wrote Trust Exercise. We've yeah. talked about that book pretty extensively on our show, uh, mainly with Mike Miley in a year interview episode a couple years ago, who brought it up as his favorite novel of that year. And he read like 80 plus novels that year. Um, and David Lipsky has an endorsement for you as well. Right. Um, what, what were some of the stories with, uh, with Susan and David getting involved with that? Well, I was definitely going to mention uh, Trust Exercise as one of my like recent books that I loved because I read it actually mm-hmm. fairly recently and, and loved it. So I was definitely yeah, it's, it's definitely one of my one of the books I want to mention as like books I yeah. love. Um, yeah. I was in one class with Susan Choi at NYU, which was great. Um, she she's like lovely. she, was, she um, taught it. Yeah, yeah, she she taught a class yeah. there. Uh, oh, cool. Um, she taught a class about the experimental novel. Uh, yeah. And it was great. Uh, she, she's fantastic. Oh, that's so, so cool. uh, and David Lipsky was, uh, well, I was in his, like he was in my first class that I ever took. Like he, he taught the first class I ever took at NYU. And then yeah. the, I enjoyed it so much that the second year, I kind of audited the class again, just to just oh, yeah. get a repeat <laughs> of it. And then we uh-huh. kind of stayed, he was my thesis advisor there and we stayed in touch and we're, I guess friends oh, like no we're, I, I'm really happy that that's a, a, an ongoing like relationship. He's like, he's really really uh, fun to talk to about books. He's oh, that's amazing! Fantastic person. Matt yeah. and I have talked a lot like since we even started the show like six and a half years ago. Like we should try and get David on the show at some point. So he's he's maybe, a, maybe that's a move that we do soon. He's <laughs> an incredibly I, interesting I person to talk friend. to. I mean, he's a friend of mine. Like I would yeah. call him a friend. Yeah, he's, he's been a, on the list Wallace Alisser for. Yeah, I mean, he's he's one of those people who just like effortlessly talks about books in a way that yeah. uh, is precluded to most other people. I think like he has a mm-hmm. pretty uh, searing eye about literature that is so rare and uncommon and just uh, hmm. impressive. It's just fun to talk to him. Also, he likes cool. a lot of the same stuff I do. So that's yeah, yeah. That helps. Well, uh, again, we really do appreciate your time today, no, and we're going to come was, back was with, our, um, yeah. with our with our bonus. Thank you episode. so much for yeah. Thank you so much for all the compliments. I feel so flattered, and yeah, yeah. I'm really yeah. not good at that. <laughs> thank you. We um, do you have any final thoughts before we go, or anything yeah, else you would we, like to add? Anything we didn't cover that you like definitely wanted to? Um, I guess. I guess there was something like, I don't know, maybe that's like a too long thing to, to branch into, but like something I find interesting, if, if that makes any sense to say about my own book, but like, I, I, I am very interested in communities. Um, right, you say and, the true religion of community at one point in your book, and which is yeah, a line that just really grabbed me. Thank you. And communities of like, 
various kinds. Like I, so like that was something that I was very drawn to in writing the book and that the setting really helped with both the time setting and the place setting, because I got to describe very different communities, like the community of the poker players. And within that community, there's the community of the high stakes poker players and the low stakes poker players. They're very different. And then there's, you know, the, the Mormon community, there's the, the pick apart community with everything that that is linked to. And then there's the union. So like, to me, I am very interested in communities and how communities work. I am very interested in the differences between like live in-person communities and online communities and whether there is Speaking a structural difference here. in that. I mean, I yeah. mean, you're, this is absolutely like, if you know anything about me, what I have like devoted my life to yeah. is, yeah. you know, the uh, an online community and how that, you know, intersects with the real world community and, you know, whether it's about David Foster Wallace or poker fans or unions in a way matters less to me than people finding that it's almost like a higher power. It can be anything. The, yeah. the community can be, be, can be anything, but the, what people get attached to are those social connections mm -hmm. um, and what the, the community can accomplish that the individual cannot. So, yeah. And, and I mean, it, it, it's incredibly interesting in that respect. Um, Sorry, I didn't interrupt. And you. that's the Margaret Thatcher quote. I was just going to say the Margaret Thatcher quote at the beginning, which is sort of like, there's no such thing as society. It's just individuals. And it's sort of like, yeah, this that's, conservative, it, that's the, that's the very ominous, idea, right? ominous, like scary, <laughs> hyper neoliberal right. way of, of, of painting that. I like, like, that, 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 again, I, I amuse myself. That's what, like, uh, having a book <laughs> open with, like, a Gramsci quote and Margaret Thatcher quote. For some reason, I found that amusing. And, like, yeah, <laughs> but I don't know. Like, it, 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 I, I'm very easily amused. Um, but, yeah, the, the, the idea of communities and, and the difference between live communities. I think there are live communities and online communities in the book. And the way they work are, to me, inherently different and qualitatively different. And I was very interested in that because, like, live communities have this root in kind of shared experience, like everyday quotidian experience. Um, whereas online, online communities are kind of um, centered on a shared interest. Usually there's no like uh, yeah. quotidian experience. Like you, you don't have like all the same boss that you're complaining about all the same friends you're, you're kind of gossiping about. So there, it's more of a, um, a shared interest usually in a cultural product of some kind or a real mm -hmm. a physical product that brings you together. And one thing that like was, I guess it was useful for me to develop the plot of the book, but it was also interesting to me to think about is the way that the communities that are born online are more because of that, because of their very nature, because they're centered on an interest as opposed to being centered on, uh, on a shared experience, they're more vulnerable to manipulation. They're easier to um, kind of interfere with and, and manipulate for, for by, you know, capital for, selling them stuff or selling them ideologies or ideas or infiltrating them with ideas because they are basically consumer groups that self-select. Like they are groups of people who all enjoy the same thing, which is a very good thing. There's like really wonderful online communities, but it's also interesting to me in the way those are uh, possibly more, more vulnerable to being manipulated because they are essentially self-selecting consumer groups. And, uh, and it's really cool to see how, uh, sometimes those communities are led astray. And, and that was, I guess, important for the plot to me to make stuff happen, but it was also something I was interested in uh, taking a look at. 
Yeah, I'm having a difficulty right now with an on a real world community in that one thing I've learned over time is when you're part of a community for a long time, you have this sense of history that isn't necessarily shared with everyone else. And so especially with organizations where there's a lot of turnover or there's a lot of new people changing leadership from year to year, it's really hard to maintain that sense of history. And it sort of reminds me of Vegas in general and that it's not a city mm. known for its history and like keeping up with um, its own sort of shared communal history, partly because there's so many transients, right? There are so yeah. many people who do come and go. And you, you do set this up in the book with Lindsay and her family being there a long time, like they're not transients and they're studying the history of it. So I, I do think all of those themes just hit me square in the wheelhouse of, you know, the communitarianism of, of Mormonism in general and what interests Orson, um, you know, versus it being the solution to rather than the problem of, uh, you know, the poker community, right? Like, the, yeah, the, there, there is a moment in the book where like uh, one of the players says something similar to what you're saying, like tries to hold another player up to a moral standard because of their shared community values saying like, you can't do that because like we as a community kind of police our behavior collectively and this like more like libertarian i i guess uh poker players response is is like this is vegas there's like three thousand new players who come and go every day are you going to police every one of them like this is not a, a small community that you can that can self-regulate in that way and uh, and i think it was interesting to me to study or to not study not uh, an academic but like to to think and, and exploit for fiction, how to think about how those communities work and how those communities intersect and, and clash sometimes. Well, I think a lot of other people will be interested in that. So I'm excited to have more people discover the book. Uh, is it out in paperback this year? Is it out in paperback? Uh, the not yet. I okay. don't know. Yeah, you think I would? Sh I should know that, right? <laughs> I, I, it should I'm... be out in paperback soon. Bloomsbury I would... <laughs> has not given you the given you the update yet. Yeah, no, I am very bad at this stuff. I'm so sorry. <laughs> but uh... we'll, we'll put it in the show notes. We'll we'll go and f figure out when the paperback is out. Um, but I, I really did love the book and uh, hope that it finds more readers. Thank you. And uh, th thank you again for your time here today. Thank you so and, much. Uh, we, we will. Um, be back with our bonus episode soon dave fantastic Matt, thank you again uh, this was people... a lot of fun thank you dario thank Matt, you. where can people get in touch with us we are at concavity show on twitter and concavity show on instagram and uh, people can email us as always concavity show at gmail.com we do like hearing from people there and if you want to get in touch with dario you can email us there and we'll we'll connect to you um, Dario has the amazing has made the great choice to not be on any social media at all, which I am increasingly thinking about nuking all of my stuff on a Go for it, man. As well. Go for it. <laughs> if it wasn't for this podcast, maybe I would. Maybe I'd pull the trigger. Um, but yeah, Dario, thank you so much, and we'll thank be back you. with our bonus episode. As usual, thank you to Parquet Courts for their music, and thank you to all of our patrons. Uh, you can check out our other stuff uh, in the show notes. Catch me now as I say Into darkness I thought to be extinct 
subscribe to the Wallace Society early on. And then, like, this is Litsky's fault, by the way, like, blame Litsky, right, yeah. that, like, he suggested I go on a Wallace hiatus while I was writing the book, which I completely see why. Mm-hmm. Makes total sense. But, yeah, no, I was, like, slightly, uh, like, I, I didn't reread I didn't read Wallace stuff, and I, I kind of disconnected a little bit while I was writing the book. 